At this time, we'll turn our attention to the reading and preaching of God's Word, and we'll now hear the scripture reading read by Huna Jun. Our reading today is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if you've ever had an experience like this. You're at home, cooking dinner in the kitchen or you're reading a book, or you're on your computer, when all of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you notice through the window that the sky, which formerly was blue, has suddenly become pink and violet and gold, and you realize there is a beautiful sunset happening just outside your doors. And you feel compelled in that moment to drop whatever it is you're doing, to walk outside, and to just behold the beauty of the sky. Or perhaps you've had an experience like this. You're walking somewhere in the summertime, you're walking down the street, you got somewhere that you need to be, and yet you suddenly realize this is the first week where all the roses come into bloom. And you feel compelled to stop just for a minute, to press your nose against the petals and to enjoy the sweet perfume. I remember last year when my seminary classes were still meeting in person, I had finished lunch in the cafeteria And I was intending to go to the library to do some studying. And as I left the cafeteria, I was heading towards the library when suddenly I heard beautiful music coming out of the chapel. The organist had come and he was practicing, I don't know what the piece was, but it was beautiful. And I felt compelled at that moment to stop what I was doing and to go into that chapel, to sit at the back and just bask in the beauty of that music. I think we've all had experiences like that where we encounter beauty And we feel at that moment that we need to drop whatever we're doing to look and to wonder. And that's what the Christmas season is, isn't it? The Christmas season, it's like a beautiful sunset. It's like a beautiful blooming rose bush, or it's like wonderful music. It invites us to stop what we're doing, to look at the Christ child, and to wonder. This morning, we're looking at the events that surround the birth of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'd like to pay particular attention to the wise men, to King Herod, and to the religious leaders, 
to observe how they respond when they encounter true beauty amongst them. Our story begins with a group of wise men, or magi, that have come to Jerusalem seeking to worship the king of the Jews. Now, who are these magi? Where do they come from? When I was a kid, there was a Christmas special that was on every year that I remember often watching. Um, it, It was called The Little Drummer Boy. Perhaps some of you have seen it. It's a claymation, which means they have these clay puppets that act out uh, the scenes uh, in the film. It was produced in 1968. And I remember in that film that the wise men were portrayed as three kings hailing from Africa, East Asia, and Europe. So that's kind of the image I've often had in my mind. But is that historically accurate? Well, the word that Matthew uses to describe the Magi is the same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe magicians. In the book of Daniel, the Magi are lumped together with enchanters, diviners, and those that study and interpret dreams. And so in Jesus' day, a Magi was a person that studied sacred text, astrology, magic, and dreams. We don't know where they came from exactly. We know that they came from the East, so that rules out Africa and Europe. Um, Most scholars suspect that they came either from ancient Babylon or ancient Persia, which would be modern-day Iran. And if that's the case, it means that the Magi traveled 1,300 kilometers to come to Jerusalem to worship the king of the Jews. To give context, that would be like walking from Toronto to Nashville, Tennessee, in a day when there weren't safe highways to walk on. This would have been a very long journey, especially given that the Magi would have had a caravan with baggage, supplies, servants, and bodyguards to travel with them. And so this group of Magi have come to Jerusalem. They've seen a star in the distance, and they feel compelled to stop what they're doing to come to Jerusalem and to worship the King of the Jews. There's a couple interesting things I think we should reflect on in this story of the Magi. Firstly, I think it's important to observe the way that God lovingly communicates with different peoples. Remember, the Magi are folks that study the stars. Now, God could have chosen to send an angel to them, as he sent to the shepherds. He could have sent them a prophet, as he'd sent to ancient Israel. He could have given them a sacred text. But God chose to speak the language that was closest to their heart. He sent them a star as a beacon pointing the way to his son. Isn't that beautiful? God doesn't have a cookie-cutter way of speaking to us. And God still speaks this way today. Um, there was a, a young woman in my, one of my classes at seminary that shared with me, before she had enrolled in school, she had suffered a very traumatic head injury. And she spent uh, a good season of time at St. John's Rehab Clinic uh, recovering from the injury. She shared with me that during that time, her brain was so damaged, she wasn't able to form coherent thoughts. She wasn't able to understand where she was or what was going on. But at St. John's Rehab Clinic, there's an Anglican convent where a bunch of, uh, of nuns live there. And they serve the people at the hospital. And the nuns would come, and they would take her in her wheelchair and bring her into the convent so that she could just sit and be present during their worship services. 
And she shared with me that she didn't know where she was. She didn't know what was happening. She couldn't even form a sentence in her mind, but she knew that God loved her. And she felt his presence with her in those moments. That's powerful. God communicated with her in the way that she could understand at that moment. And God does the same with the wise men in our story and does the same with each of us today. A second thing I think is really beautiful from the story of the wise men is the fact that God will go to the very ends of the earth to draw people to come and behold his son. Matthew, most scholars describe the gospel of Matthew as the most Jewish of the gospels. When Matthew wrote, he had a Jewish audience in mind. And so we might have suspected that the gospel of Matthew really focuses on the ministry of Jesus to the people of Israel. But isn't it interesting that here, at the very beginning of Jesus' life, his first worshipers, as recorded by Matthew, are Gentiles, foreigners, and they don't even practice the Jewish faith. They're magicians. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the risen Jesus gives this commission to his disciples. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew does not present Jesus as coming to start a new movement within Israel. Matthew presents Jesus as coming to enfold every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every culture into the family of God. It's beautiful. A number of years ago, I read a book. Um, It sounds incredibly boring. It's about the demographics of the Christian faith uh, by Philip Jenkins. It's called The Next Christendom. And at the beginning of the book, uh, the author invites the reader to close their eyes and imagine in their mind what a typical Christian looks like. And so I did it, you know, and and I'll be honest, I imagined someone that looks like me. I imagined a, a white man from North America. And Jenkins said, you should have imagined a Nigerian woman from a rural village who practices a charismatic expression of Christianity, because that's an average Christian. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus Christ has magnetically drawn to himself these magi from the east, Asians from the east, Latin Americans and Africans from the south, and Europeans from the west. And today, over two billion people worship Jesus. And these magi are the first of the Gentiles, to come and do so. So when I think back on the little drummer boy and their depiction of the Magi, it's not historically accurate. But in a deeper sense, I think that they accurately understood that these Magi, these first Gentile worshipers of Jesus, they represent all the Gentiles, all the nations of the world that would come to be included in this diverse family of God. Jesus has truly broken down the barriers that have separated peoples and cultures from one another. And that's a beautiful thing. And so the Magi see this star in the east and they feel compelled to stop what they're doing, to go and to look at the Christ child and to wonder. And so the star takes them to Jerusalem, but it doesn't take them exactly to where Jesus is. And so they go into town seeking further guidance where they might find the Christ child. And this is where Herod enters the story. King Herod was a vassal king. He was put in place by the Roman Empire in 37 BC, and he ruled until his death in 4 BC. 
as a piece of fun Christmas trivia for you, this means that Jesus was likely born between the year 6 and 5 BC, not in the year 0, as we might have thought. King Herod is known as Herod the Great um, because he did some great things. He built a lot of cities, he built theaters, and he even reconstructed the temple in Jerusalem. He's also known as Herod the Great because he brought peace and order and stability to a region that was often marred by conflict and turmoil. However, like many leaders, the way that Herod accomplished these great feats was through the iron fist of a tyrant. Herod was paranoid about the security of his throne to the point that he had his own wife and three of his sons murdered when he viewed them as competitors to his political power. And so it's to this iron-fisted, paranoid tyrant that the Magi come and they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Can't you imagine what Herod was thinking inwardly? I'm the only king of the Jews, he'd be thinking. And it's at that moment he starts plotting how he might use the Magi to locate and eliminate Jesus. When King Herod is confronted by the beauty of the Christmas story, he feels threatened. And unfortunately, Herod hasn't been the only person to historically feel threatened by Jesus Christ. I was reading an article in the National Post this week that said, while the vast majority of Canadians have a positive view of Jesus Christ, 27% of Canadians view Jesus negatively. It's much higher than I thought. I think as Christians, we need to own that we actually have a role in that negative perception of Jesus. I have to imagine in that 27% that there's a good number of people that they associate Jesus with a Christian with whom they've had a negative interaction. Perhaps they experienced judgmentalism or hypocrisy, or they saw the church turning a blind eye to abuse and injustice and wickedness. And as Christians, we need to own that. We need to own our sin the fact that we have maligned the name of Jesus. We need to confess it and pray that the Holy Spirit helps us be a better witness for Christ in 2021. However, at the same time, there are many people like King Herod who feel threatened by Jesus, not because they've had a negative experience with the Christians, but rather because they understand that if Jesus is who he claims to be, then there are implications for our lives. If Jesus is God, then when I disagree with him, he's not the one that's wrong. If Jesus is God, then it means I can't live my life as if that truth hadn't happened. Now, I think for many of us listening to the sermon today, perhaps we identify more with the Magi. You know, we see the beauty of the star and we desire to worship Jesus. But I want to challenge you that I think in each of us, there's a little Herodian voice that says, don't bend the knee to Jesus. One of the analogies I've used with the young adults is I, I invite them to envision their life as a big house with all these different rooms that represent different areas of life. So you have an office, and that represents how you behave at work and how you engage with your studies. There's a vault in the basement where we keep money, and that represents how do we make money? Where do we spend it? Where do we give it? There's a guest room that represents how do we interact with our neighbors and our friends. There's rooms for our leisure time, there's rooms for our romantic life, and so on. And the question that I ask the young adults is, 
are there any rooms in your house where you don't want King Jesus to come in? Are there any rooms that you want to keep the door shut because you like being in charge in that room? I know that that's something I struggle with. I think part of our challenge in bending the knee to Christ is that if Jesus was any other human ruler, that would be a frightful thing. We would rightfully fear that he would abuse our trust, that he would fail us and disappoint us. But the fact is, Jesus is not any human king. Jesus is the one, he is the word of God through whom the stars were spoken into existence. He's the one that at his birth, a star announces his arrival. And so we might expect that he'd be a great, powerful king with a golden throne, and yet his throne is a manger. Last week, Reverend Jeffrey Hines was preaching to us about the shepherds that had come to worship Jesus. And today we're looking at the Magi. In these two groups, we see that Jesus is the king of the Jew and the Gentile, of the poor and the rich, of the unschooled and the intellectual. In the ministry of Jesus, we see that he poured out his life forgiving sinners, healing the sick, and inviting the outcast in. In his ministry, the people that felt the most threatened were those that trusted in their own goodness and felt that they didn't need grace in their life. There are two moments in the ministry of Jesus when a group of Gentiles calls him king of the Jews. There's this moment with the Magi looking for the king of the Jews, and then at the death of Jesus, a group of Roman soldiers call him king of the Jews, and they nail a sign that says so above his body as he dies on the cross. At the birth of Jesus, a star came into the sky announcing that he had arrived, and at his death, the sun hid its face. And he did all these things out of love for you and love for me. Jesus is the only king that can be trusted with every area of our life because he will not fail, he will not abuse, he will not disappoint. He loves you. And so let's each of us repent of that little Herodian voice that fears to bend the knee to Jesus. And so King Herod gathers the religious elites in Jerusalem. He gathers the chief priests. They're the ones that are in charge of the cultic practices in the temple. And he gathers the scribes. They're the ones that study the Hebrew scriptures. And he inquires of them, where is the Messiah to be born? They come back and they quote from prophet Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and they say, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, 10 kilometers south of Jerusalem. And so the Magi, armed with this knowledge, they walk south to Bethlehem, seeking Jesus. Now, what I find bewildering about this passage is that not one of the religious leaders is recorded as accompanying the Magi south. Bethlehem was only a two-hour walk from where they stood in Jerusalem. And these magi have journeyed 1,300 kilometers, saying the Messiah, the king of the Jews, has arrived, and he's, he's 10 kilometers south of us. And not one of the religious leaders goes with them. Could be xenophobia. You know, who are these pagan magicians to tell us about our Messiah? Could be fear of uh, retribution from King Herod. Or it could be simply that their hearts had grown hard. 
could be that these were the type that they glimpse a beautiful sunset through the window, but they're too busy to go outside and look. They smell the beautiful perfume of roses, but they have places to go. They have their own concerns to be focused on. They hear the siren call of beautiful music, and they think, sitting and listening to that is not a productive use of my time. I know I've made that kind of mistake before. And the Christmas story is a beautiful invitation. It invites us to come and see. Come and see the God who spoke the world into existence that has become a vulnerable human being. The invisible God has become visible. He's become touchable. We can hear his voice. We can talk to him and see God's will in him. If that's true, it's worth pausing to investigate. And so my fear is that some of us are so busy in the events of our own lives that we don't have the bandwidth to pause and go outside to look at that sunset. And I want to invite us to join the Magi to investigate, to go to Christ in wonderment to see if it's true. You might decide that it's not, but if you don't seek, you will never find. So the Magi turn south. They walk 10 kilometers to Bethlehem. The star reappears and it leads them to the exact point where Jesus and his mother Mary are. And they rejoice. They go into the house. They bow down, worshiping Jesus. And they offer their gifts, their treasures from the east. And again, God speaks their language. He sends them a dream, warning them not to return to Herod. And so they go back to their country by another route. I want to conclude our time this morning with a small word of encouragement. I was talking with my wife about the passage this morning, and she said that the story of the Magi resonates with us because it depicts a spiritual journey that all of us can identify with. The Magi see a star, um, see a star and feel drawn by its beauty, and so they go to look, seeking after the Christ child. And as they go, you can imagine them, can't you? As they go down a hill, they lose sight of the star. And they feel lost. But as they summit the next hill, there it is again. When they finally reach Jerusalem, it seems like they've come to a dead end. The star has vanished and they don't know where to go. And then at last, the star reappears over the house in Bethlehem. And they finally arrive at their Savior. And they worship him as a humble child, knowing and expecting that one day he will be more than he appears. I think we can all identify with that. Sometimes in this broken world, it feels like God is more distant than a distant star. Sometimes it feels like we've lost him completely or that we've come to a dead end in our search. And yet the promise of the scriptures is that one day we will each face Jesus face to face. We'll be invited to kneel down beside those magi and to present not just gifts, but our very selves as his treasures. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you for the beauty of the Christmas story and how the Christmas season invites us to stop, to look, and to wonder. I pray for those of us this morning that feel scared to bend the knee towards Christ, that you would help us to see his love. I pray for those of us that feel indifferent, feel so burdened by the cares of life, that you would help us feel drawn as those magi were 2,000 years ago. And I pray for those of us 
that are seeking and feel that you are distanced, that we would sense your love, that we would sense our nearness to Christ, and that we would continue to present ourselves as his treasures. I pray this in his name. Amen. We have time for uh, a few questions from the phone this morning, so I invite you to send those in. I do apologize, we probably won't get to every question, so I am sorry if we don't get to yours. I have a little bit of trouble with my vision, and so my brother Jeff, who's the liturgist, um, he's going to read some of the questions, and I'll, I'll do my best to respond to them. Thank you, Graham, for the message this morning. And my word right now is that there are no questions. Ah, very good. <laughs> um, I'm very bad at Q&A, so that's God's grace to me this morning. Thank you. <laughs> well, how about then, um, how about then we'll, uh, we'll turn to, I'll, I'll invite Jeff to come up here, and we'll turn to our, uh, our time of reflection this morning.